Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the three most important federal news stories of the week as selected by two experts in the federal government community. It's the Fed Scoop News Countdown on the Daily Scoop podcast. It's Friday, May 13th, 2022. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Today, my experts in the federal government community are Stan Soloway, president and CEO of Solero Strategies, former deputy undersecretary of defense, for acquisition reform. Welcome, my friend. Good to see you, Francis. And Robert Shea, National Managing Principal for Public Policy at Grant Thornton Public Sector, former Associate Director at the Office of Management and Budget. Good day to you, sir. God, you sound good. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Before we do number three, Robert, you, as always, wanted to break the rules. And you said, and if we have a time to talk about this one... You wanted to talk about work from the Government Accountability Office on the nation's fiscal health. Why was this significant enough that you wanted to mention it, but not big enough to get into your top three? So you were kind enough to invite me on your show to talk about the top three stories. Yes. Knowing that GAO recently reported and testified before Congress on the nation's fiscal health, I went to everybody's favorite source, Google, to find a top story on the subject. Couldn't find a credible periodical that covered the story. Hmm. GAO, that sunny, rosy Gene Dodaro, uh, said the fiscal situation in the U.S. government is unsustainable. That debt held by the public is projected to surpass 200% of GDP by 2048 if nothing's done about it. Um, Interest on the debt is crowding out mandatory spending programs like Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. This is a crisis. Um, And uh, uh, that no one covered it is really a travesty. Now, truth be told, GAO has been saying this for a long time. Pandemic economic recovery spending has exacerbated the situation significantly, accelerated the 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 time by which you know our uh, things like interest on the debt will exceed mandatory spending, but mandatory spending and interest on the debt will crowd out our ability to spend on existing programs. Not to mention emergencies, uh, other crises like the pandemic that emerge, and they will. Way, way to start us off on a on a on a bright note. Yeah, you've launched everybody's weekends really in a positive <laughs> way, making everybody feel happy for the big weekend that's coming. So thanks for that. So with that, we will actually go to number three. Stan Soloway, your third most important federal news story of the week is the uh, Biden administration already signaling, primarily because of inflation, but maybe not exclusively, that they'd be willing to ask for or they would go along with Congress appropriating more money for defense. Why'd you choose this at number three, Stan? Well, let me start by com- filing a complaint with the with the news countdown complaint department because Robert Shea, one of my dearest friends, just stole my entire thunder. Oh. <laughs> and I put it out there as a story was not only that the administration is thinking and Congress may be thinking about increasing defense spending for reasons you just mentioned, I'll come back to that, but also because it leads you into this broader discussion of the fiscal challenges, the fiscal crisis we face. And I won't repeat everything Robert just said, because it's exactly where I was going to go with it, is that we're facing this incredible challenge from an operational perspective, at least the economics aside, 
from an operational perspective, it's going to put tremendous pressure on the government. I think, uh, I think Robert, you can correct me. I think I saw that interest uh, payment debt service is going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of $400 billion next year. And if there's a percent or two increase in inflation, that goes up enormously uh, against a, a domestic spending side of the ledger, which is what, 650 or $700 billion. So it is an enormous factor, not just economically and unsustainable, but the structural deficit that Robert referenced is going to begin to really affect the ability of government agencies to do what they need to do to invest and so forth. And so I take the defense spending piece as both an example of where we're going to see some of those tensions pay out, play out, but the other side of it, and less directly related to, to, to Robert's point, is the fact that when companies and agencies, particularly the Defense Department, begin to look at the budget and they see growth, what they're actually experiencing is loss. And what we know for a fact is historically when there's budget pressures, the operations and maintenance, the open O&M accounts are the ones that typically are the bill payers. And that's where a lot of government IT is done. That's where a lot of the, the, the important development is done. The procurement accounts, which is where major systems uh, come from, are typically less impacted. So even within DOD, which has enormous challenges around technology and business operations, some of this could begin now to really encroach on DOD's ability to do what it needs from that perspective. Okay, a couple of things there. First of all, your complaint is denied and uh, <laughs> and not even to be considered. I mean, I'm just, no, I might even go back and edit it out. I'm not sure yet. Um, the second thing is, we did see numbers yesterday that indicated that inflation appears at least to be easing temporarily, if not permanently. And so I imagine that that means that what you just talked about for inflation going up might also tend to be potentially a relief valve if inflation goes down. Robert, what do you see as potentially the long-term impact on inflation budget-wise, not just in this budget year, but potentially in budget out years? Well, it depends on whether policymakers take the fiscal situation seriously. If inflation continues to rise, something else is going to have to give. But if history is a guide, they're not going to take the fiscal situation seriously and will, contend def will continue deficit spending as if they don't matter. When those things bite us in the ass is yet to be determined. Let me just add a real quick point sure. on that. Even if inflation is easing a little bit, Budget planning to date has not accounted for seven and a half or eight and a half percent inflation. It's been much lower than that. I was um, at a meeting this week where Dave Liebrich of the Treasury Department was talking about massive increased interest in savings bonds. Uh, ser service uh, customer service representatives who are used to thousands of calls are getting millions of calls almost overnight because of the attractive interest rate on those savings bonds as compared to the market. The uh, third most important federal news story of the week is selected by Stan Soloway is the potential increases to the defense budget the Biden administration is signaling that it is open to. Robert, your choice at number three is the White House saying that it uh, has a plan for improving the permitting process for infrastructure projects. Why is this a big deal to you? I mean, what, what attracted to me about it was that a lot of the ground that's been laid over the past several administrations in management improvement arenas are being sustained. And this is one of those. So the um, Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Council has been working in the vineyards trying to rationalize, improve, accelerate the government's permitting processes all over the place. And in an environment when we're trying to um, strengthen the United States 
supply chains, reshoring a lot of industries, reduce our reliance on uh, China. Um, we need to make it easier for companies to put their facilities here. And so this was sort of a confluence of a, a program to address an economic uh, national security situation and a management improvement initiative that's been going on for the last several administrations. Stan, what's the reality of the defense industrial base in particular, but the government contracting base in general, of what comes from the United States? I mean, I, I know about the Buy America uh, policies and, and laws, especially for national security stuff, but what's the reality of what that supply chain looks like compared to what it could look like in the kind of environment that the administration is aiming for? So, so I think the environment that the, that the economy globally is heading towards is where we're going to end up. And it's not quite what both parties, by the way, talk about with onshoring and by America and so forth. Um, we, be, we are now seeing in the commercial sector, a friend of mine who's a supply chain expert refers to as regionalization, moving away from everything being in the east because just sheer distance and risk is too expensive and a growing north-south sort of axis, if you will, for supply chain. And so we're not going to see the onshoring of everything. We will see risk mitigated and risk reduced but by more regionalization, lower risk environments where the work, where stuff is being produced. I think that, that you know, we've been through the Buy America debate, I don't know how many times in the last 25 or 30 years, but we've never been in a situation where we had so much reliance on an enemy, on a, on a country that, that we literally know we cannot in any way, shape or form count on. The reliance is too great. So that has to shift. But the idea that we're going to recapitalize all of these industry sectors in the United States is probably very unrealistic. The goal has to be to de-risk or minimize risk in the chain and recognize that there's going to be a different sort of regional balance. All right. Robert Shea's choice for the third most important federal news story of the week is the White House's plan for improving the permitting process for infrastructure projects. FedScoop News Countdown continues in a moment. You have a week left to vote for the best bosses in federal IT. Voting closes next Friday, May 20th, and you can see a link to the nominees and vote in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. We're up to... Number two. And Robert, your second most important federal news story of the week, I'm going to guess came with either a very kind email or maybe a $20 bill because you had your love letter for GAO earlier in the program. And your story at number two is the overlap duplication and fragmentation program from the Government Accountability Office. Now, I know you're a fan, but choosing two GAO stories in one countdown is not something I recall you having ever done before in the history of this program. Right. Well, nobody's inviting me to charm up their dinner parties with, with clever <laughs> No, I think people do. I think people yeah. do that all the time, and you just don't like to highlight it. Look, um, I am a huge fan of GAO's work. They are um, one of the workhorses of federal oversight, and the benefits they, that the taxpayer gains go unheralded. And this is an example. The 10th year that GAO has inventoried and made recommendations to improve or reduce overlap and duplication across the government. They advertise $552 billion in financial benefits from their recommendations, but another massive amount that could be gained if the administration and agencies and Congress took their recommendations seriously and implemented them. So here's the challenge that I see in this, stand. 
this GAO report says that agencies have addressed, fully addressed 56% of the recommendations they've made over time, partially addressed another 18%. That means there's still a whole bunch that they haven't even touched. And they still have managed to save or avoid spending uh, a half a trillion dollars. What does that tell you? Well, it tells me that that it's a target-rich environment, but it also feels an awful lot like when we were doing some of the the, the, the cloud migration, and we'd hear that we'd, we'd, we'd migrate, you know, 40% of the cloud isn't that great. And then people go, well, that's the low-hanging fruit. The, the further you get from zero, the harder and harder it gets. So, and this will lead into, I won't get too much into it now, because it leads into one of my stories that I put on the list for today, because it's I think it's connected. I think the hardest thing for a bureaucracy to do is to consolidate. And I, I'm, I share Robert's admiration for GAO. In fact, it was GAO's former comptroller general who coined the phrase, the structural deficit back in the, in the you know, 20 years ago. Um, so I, I share that. Was it that um, long? Yeah, probably 20 years ago. Yeah, we're all old. We are getting up there. And, um, and so I think it's great that progress is being made, but I can just see from work I'm doing the opportunities are enormous, but the resistance is is equally so. So it's going to take an amazing leadership effort to get the next 20 or 30%. One of the initiatives I think uh, shows real promise is the customer experience initiatives under the president's management agenda, where the um, administration is grouping agencies that impact certain major life events uh, in a citizen's life um, so that they can uh, map and improve the customer experience that those individuals face at those points in their lives. Robert Shea's choice for the second most important federal news story of the week is the Government Accountability Office's Fragmentation, Duplication, and Overlap list. Stan Soloway, your choice at number two is the Senate effort to have Congress fully fund Unemployment Insurance Administration. Why is that a big, de- big enough deal for you to put it at number two this week? It didn't when I first read it, I wasn't sure I saw why you thought it was that big a deal. In and of itself, it's not that big of a deal. Um, again, it, to me, it was symbolic of, uh, it, it almost reminds me of George Aiken's declare victory and go home. So I think what it, for me, and in the way I see this issue is throughout the pandemic, massive holes in the safety net have been exposed. Massive challenges for delivering, not just in an emergency environment, but even a regular of benefits to people. Unemployment insurance was absolutely overloaded. You talk about call centers, Robert. I mean, it was just absolutely exploded. And so what the government did, what the administrations did, and both in this crossed over with Congress, is they gave states a tremendous amount of flexibility in how they administered their unemployment insurance so they could actually innovate and do things differently, use different kinds. They could use contractors, retirees, uh, annuitants, all kinds of things that they could do that were not under the normal rules of the game. Uh, And the states that took advantage of that flexibility, and there were like 40 of them, uh, Republican and Democrat pretty evenly split, had markedly better performance in helping people obtain in a timely manner their unemployment insurance benefits. What this bill in Congress says is we're going to go fund it fully, which we'll see if that ever happens, because I'm skeptical for the reasons we talked about a minute ago, the kinds of things that tend to get cut. But it presumes that by funding it fully, I've solved the problem. And the problem continues to be the government's abject challenges of attracting talent. And if you look throughout the UI system, not just at the federal level, but at the state and local level, the percentage of jobs that are open at state government is massive. Connecticut, one in six jobs, one in six state jobs is, is, is vacant. 
Uh, Denver has something like four dozen people to handle all of their benefits claims for all of their programs. They can't hire people. So I saw this and what, what I, it, it becomes one of those cases where Congress will say, look, we're fully funding UI, it's gonna be great. My reaction is, wait a second, you're not actually dealing with the root cause issue here. We have prohibitions in the way the federal government manages and, 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 and requires state and local governments to manage benefits programs that inhibit innovation, inhibit flexibility, and don't enable us actually to get at the root causes and, and solve the problem in the big sense. So that was a, it was a symbolic story, but I think it spoke to a much bigger post-pandemic environment, which is, are we gonna learn lessons or just observe them from the pandemic? Uh, I'll add one last thing. There are other things going on in the administration that I think are similar to this. This is of course, Congress. Um, the Department of Labor has a proposed rule coming out regarding who can handle um, employment services at the state and local level on behalf of the federal government. Uh, CMS is beginning to enforce an age old rule, a decade or more old rule that's never been enforced before around who can conduct fair hearings for well, for Medicare or Medicaid rede uh, uh, redeterminations. There are 85 million people who are gonna have their Medicaid redeterminations done as soon as the public health emergency is over. There's not a, there's not a chance on this earth that there are enough people within the system to do it. You've got to give states flexibility. You've got to allow innovation. And all of these things tend to go against. And Robert, my last story of the day, which is going to tie to your CX comment is, I worry that this great CX initiative is actually going to run up against other things that are going to inhibit it from being effective. Robert, you work with state and local governments in your role at Grant Thornton, and you have the experience that you had in the federal government too. We've talked a million times, if we've talked once over the years, about the challenge that the federal government has hiring people. From the way Stan describes it, it's worse for the state and local governments. Is that what you see when you work with them on an ongoing basis? It's a consistent <clears throat> issue across all levels of government. Government can't pay uh, people nearly as much as the private sector. So they're already at a disadvantage when they can't hire them quickly uh, and have trouble retaining them. It exacerbates the problem. I'm not sure there's any difference at the state, local, or federal level. Everybody shares this challenge, and it's particularly acute in the labor crisis we're suffering through right now. Yeah, and, and that was going to be my follow-up, Robert. Because of the situation that we're in right now that doesn't appear to be getting better, it won't get better for government hiring and, and attracting talent anytime soon. Probably so will they, it. So they've got to invest, and I know the federal government's got a major focus on this, finally breaking the logjam in hiring reform. Use creative ways to bring people on, but make the routine process for searching for and applying for a government job much easier than it is today. Quick add on to that. The Pew Center recently reported that the gap between public sector jobs and the private sector is greater than it's actually ever been. In an environment where there's estimated to be two to two and a half jobs for every applicant, that's out there that's active in the workforce, that's a real problem. The second thing I'd say, and I, I agree with Robert, the government has got to break that logjam, but to believe that in the current economy, the government's ever going to fully catch up on the workforce side, I believe is naive. And some of the arcane concepts we have of how we shift work, the multi-sector partnerships that we've inhibited, encouraged, then inhibited again, we've got to kind of get out of that mindset and realize that this is in fact a collective challenge, and we can't just expect the government to do it alone. Stan, your choice at number two this week is uh, Senator Ron Wyden and 19 of his colleagues 
wanting uh, to fully fund Unemployment Insurance Administration as the White House has requested for fiscal 2023. More FedScoop News Countdown coming in just a moment. The lineup for the Government Innovation Strategy and Technology Conference next Thursday is really stacked up. The conference is happening at the International Spy Museum in downtown D.C. You can find the link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. And that brings us to the most important federal news story of the week as selected by Robert Shea. You puzzled me again, my friend. I don't I don't understand this. I have to confess. I mean, I think I get tangentially what you're going for here. But this is part of the reason I like having you on the show, because I don't know what you're going to pull out. So your choice for the most important federal news story of the week is a TV show. First of all, it's on Apple TV, which I don't have. And so I've never seen this show. I've never even heard of this show before. But it's about a guy. Do you explain it? Because so I can't even begin to explain it. My choice of this story has nothing to do with the fact that I might be in some of the screenshots in the show. Oh, <laughs> now we know. <laughs> but, but oh, it is a story about one of the greatest Senate investigations of all time. Eric C. Kahn was a lawyer in West Virginia who focused exclusively on social security disability appeals. Great name. He was in cahoots with a local uh, administrative law judge and local doctors who processed thousands of disability appellants, giving them the exact same diagnosis. And the administrative law judge at the Social Security Administration rubber stamped all of them. And he's of an extremely colorful character. He's been married seven times, 17 times. I'm sorry, 17 times. One seven? Um, one seven. There's oh a goal God. for all of us. Oh, my God. <laughs> the, no, it's not even the, possible. The, uh, um, but the show, which I did have to sign up for Apple TV to watch, uh-huh. features deeply the law enforcement agencies, the Social Security Office of the Inspector General, the Permanent Select Committee on Investigations of the Committee on Government Affairs, uh, Homeland Security and Government Affairs. Um, all those staff are talked to. It's a, it's a very juicy story that highlights a lot of important facets of the bureaucracy that we deal with all the time. And I highly encourage you to watch it. I wonder if that could happen today, Stan. I, I mean, I know the data operation in federal agencies is not as sophisticated as anybody would like it to be. But I would think that we've progressed far enough into the data era that something like that would throw a red flag to somebody somewhere, I would hope. Wouldn't you think? Bless, well, bless yeah. your heart. Bless yeah, your heart. So, so my mother used <laughs> Am to say I too naive, lips, guys? From, my mother used to say, from your lips to God's ears. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just sitting here stunned because I told you when you when you when you told me that Robert and I were doing the show together, I said, I love him like a brother, but I know he's going to he's going to outdo me. And this this is a this is this is an all time winner. It's a, it's a great pull. That's right. Um, and, and I'm, I'm going to go watch this. It's a documentary. I assume it's not yeah, a drama. Right. That's I'm right. Go watch this documentary. Could it happen today? Yeah, it happened. It still happens. I mean, how did Fat Leonard take the Navy for all those tens of millions of dollars? There's another documentary, another podcast on that called Fat there's Leonard. Whole, yeah, there's a whole thing coming out of fat, on Fat Leonard. And and by the way, that included, you know, high ranking officers who got wrapped up in it and so forth. So look, there's evil everywhere you look at. The question is always how the, how the institution can respond to and ferret it out. Um, but no, I wouldn't say that we're in a situation today where that, that couldn't happen. 
I, I wouldn't be nearly that confident. All right. Uh, Robert Shea's choice for the most important federal news story of the week is because he's in it. And I'm just going to leave it at that. Uh, we'll put a link to that show in the show notes, the daily scoop podcast.com Stan, your choice at number one is my colleague, Dave Nichapier's story at fedscoop.com federal CIO focused on success metrics post CX executive order. Now the two of us or the three of us individually and have talked about on this program, customer experience and the emphasis on it last administration, this administration, the Obama administration, like people have talked about this for a long time. Do you get a sense either from this particular story or from things that the administration is doing, Stan, that customer experience has kind of turned a corner and this is something that really is going to be ingrained in the way that the government does business moving forward? Well, that's a serious question. The reason I chose it was because it was a Fed scoop story and I wanted to curry favor. I was about to call you you out on being a suck up. Yeah. Jay's going to suck up to Gene Dodaro. I'll suck up to (laughs) the scoop. Uh, No, on a serious note. um, So the answer to your question, I think, is yes, it has turned a corner. I I think, as Robert mentioned before, it is one of the most important management initiatives we've seen in a long time. I think think this focus on the five life events is a tremendously important step forward, very smart way to sort of pull pieces together. Full stop, other side of the coin. I continue to be worried, worried is probably the wrong word, but I continue to be concerned that we are not defining customer experience in the way it needs to be defined. That we are still looking primarily, and I'm not blaming anyone here, at front end interfaces and, and interactions and not enough focus being put on the back end, deep embedded business processes that would enable you to actually optimize the customer experience. And so improving the customer experience is, a, is really important. I 100% support the initiative. I'm really gonna be interested in what all the metrics are because most of the metrics that they have talked about thus far tie more to what I said, which is more about are, are your front end experiences, your engagement with the government more positive? But my point is, if we really wanted to get at this, and by the way, the money you could think about saving long term, go back to Robert's earlier story in the GAO report around duplication, around why do we have, as a friend of mine says, when we talk about public benefits, why do we make poor people prove five times a week that they're poor for five different programs? I mean, there's a tremendous opportunity with data integration and program, not not necessarily consolidation, because there's differences but program coordination to take this to a whole nother level. And so I think on the one hand, yes, we are definitely making enormous strides. And I think the team is strong. The other hand is, I don't think we're necessarily getting at the nub of it. And that really is, I think, where where the optimization and the real big progress could be had. Robert, isn't the problem, the, the biggest holdup to the vision that Stan just laid out there though, making sure that we're, that people can identify themselves to the government with confidence that when I log in, they know it's me so that when I log in for any one of those five things, I don't have to then prove over and over again that I'm poor to use Stan's words. So that's one really important step in the process. But to Stan's point that we've got to map the end to end process. And one of them is um, it doesn't matter how they're going to identify you. If you don't know that there's a benefit out there to which for which you're eligible. Um, and, you know, uh, offering vaccines uh, for free at a location doesn't mean a lot to somebody who can't get there. So we really do have to think about the, the populations we're trying to serve, be empathetic with the experience that they're going through, 
and design an experience for all facets of, of, of that benefit. Let me give you a specific um, example, if I could, Robert, to sort of build on what you just said. And I, and I may get some of the absolute details wrong here, but, the, but conceptually, this is right. So if you look at the Obamacare, if you look at Affordable Care Act, one of the things that was supposed to happen is if you were applying for Medicaid and you weren't eligible for Medicaid, you were supposed to be rolled right over into the exchange program. Perfectly logical. Doesn't happen. The systems aren't, I mean, we don't have the, 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 the correct uh, uh, interoperable systems even just to do that. Um, for the first time in history, I believe the first time in history, the SNAP program, food stamps, is going to begin to share data with Medicaid. They have never talked before, which is odd because 90% of, of food stamp recipients are Medicaid eligible. So you, you can see the opportunity here, and I'm going to oversimplify for a common application process, not dissimilar to colleges, with lots of different permutations. I get it's more complicated than that. That's the kind of thing that I think is real customer experience. It's, it's the end to end Robert's talking about. Are this are we at the point where we're taking the steps to get to that vision though, Stan, or are we still kind of nipping around the edges? We could be. This is why I'm excited about this initiative. We could be. I think there's some really smart people, both in government and recently out of government, who are thinking about this. Again, what I don't want to see happen, I'm not, and I don't think anybody in the system today has in this intent, but what unfortunately sometimes happens is, again, it's the George Aiken, you know, declare victory and go home, move on to the next big thing because we fixed parts of it. This is going to be a sustained effort. This is going to take years to do this right. Stan Soloway's choice is the most important federal news story of the week. Federal CIO focused on success metrics post-CX executive order. And that's the last one on this week's FedScoop News Countdown, gentlemen. It, one of the things that I look forward to in bringing this concept back from when I did it on the radio years ago was that we would just be able to hang out, talk about the news of the week, and we did it this week. And it's wonderful to see both of you and have both of you back in this format. It's great to, great to do it again. Thank you. Love you both. Love you both. It was fun to do. Great. And, and Robert, you'll send me an autographed picture at some point soon? S soon, when I learn how to spell. All right, gentlemen, the Federal News Countdown returns next Friday on the Daily Scoop podcast. And the Daily Scoop podcast is back on Monday. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. I'm Francis Rose. 